Welcome along to the Snap Your American Football Show here on Off The Ball. All our coverage is brought to you in association with the Aer Lingus College Football Classic. That's Northwestern versus Nebraska at the Aviva Stadium on Saturday, August 27, 2022. Check out collegefootballireland.com for full details. Their brand new website is there and waiting for you. We'll have some exciting news in the coming weeks regarding first dibs on tickets to what is sure to be an electric occasion at Lansdowne Road, so uh, keep eyes peeled for that. I'm joined this week and every week, I would say every week, Keen, but you were on a sabbatical last week, but I'm welcoming you in here. How are things? Oh, you mentioned getting tickets there. You're just stabbing me in the heart today. Just fails to get New Zealand Ireland tickets. Oh, I didn't. Uh, they're not quite in my price bracket, Keen. There was it like 150 euro or something? I have a rule with these things. I, I did it once for LeBron in LA. Uh, if it's something like it's a once in a lifetime opportunity, I'll spend over the cost for it. So it was like 165. Either way, it doesn't matter now because I didn't pay because I didn't get any. You're going to have to pull some rank in off the ball. Hopefully they might be able to wangle you in get there. Right. That's Stop it. That's it. Um, it's a weird time or probably a good time for American sports fans. A weird sort of amalgam of of the calendar where the World Series is happening, the NBA is back and we're into the proper throws of the NFL where things are really getting hot and heavy. So there's probably a dream scenario for fans of Americana. Yeah, and the NHL is on too right now, I believe. I, it's kind of different because the schedules have been messed up with COVID over the last couple of years, but normally there's a sweet spot around this time of the year where you get the regular season NFL, you get the baseball playoffs, you get the start of the NHL season and the start of the NBA season. It's, it's the sweet spot, it's brilliant, and if you are, like myself, a fan of all the sports, well, I'm a fan of all of them at, to a certain degree, but like the one thing I actually did find in recent years that was interesting was the baseball playoffs can actually be quite fun. Baseball regular season is terrible, because there's like 7 million games every season, so none of the games actually matter, but when you get down to those dramatic stages in the playoffs, it's actually really fun, and like or it's and especially good if you're like... A, an insomniac and you're just waiting around to do something at night you can stumble on a baseball game and it's easy enough to follow so yeah it's a good time of the year that'd be my sense of basketball as well where you know high stakes nba playoffs is probably as great a sport can get but there's so many dead rubbers in the regular season and load management all this kind of stuff at least in the nfl and american football broadly speaking each game is is particularly high stakes, you know, like a, a few losses in a row can really derail your season, whereas you see it with the Lakers at the moment in basketball, they're, they're just kind of finding their feet with their, uh, their veteran leadership, we call it that, Russell Westbrook and his quadruple-double, all that kind of stuff. But, yeah, yeah at, least, at least the NBA, though, even though they're kind of dead rubbers, like the, the games themselves are fast-paced and it's only two hours long, whereas baseball dead rubbers are like four and a half hours long and there is nothing happening for half the time yeah. you're watching the game. It's true, it's more of a, a fan event, in-person experience. I've been to Yankees Red Sox one time and yeah, most of it, I'd say 40% of the audience are just kind of mingling and having the crack rather than actually absorbing the game, but sure. We're here to talk college football and American football and NFL, broadly speaking, Keen. And one story which we won't get into in the pick six, but we can talk about is Tom Brady's 600 touchdown pass and the, the strange fallout from that. It, what was an otherwise uneventful game, but Byron Kennedy was given the ball by Mike Evans and decided to hand it right back. I don't know what you would have done in that situation, Keane. Would you have held out with that leverage you had? Well, Brady said on the Monday Night Football broadcast that he gave up all his leverage when he gave the ball back, which is true. It's an interesting one because technically he doesn't actually have any leverage. Like He's in a private event. He's It's private property owned by the NFL. Just because it's handed to him, they could very easily have security go and take that ball back off of him. 
So he can't really complain. He got a thousand dollars for the the team store. He got a couple of jerseys. He got signed jerseys. He got a signed helmet. He got season tickets. I mean, for being a guy who just happened to be lucky enough to catch the ball that was thrown to the crowd, he's doing yeah. pretty well for himself. But I understand uh, the the expectation that he could have got more too. You know, he got a bitcoin as well, which is apparently worth like sixty grand. What? Right? Yeah, he got a Bitcoin, which is a Tom Brady one. So, yeah, he's doing very well for himself. I think th- the real issue is that, like, the ball itself is going to be worth at least half a million. So, But you're probably right. In, in the grand scheme of things, if push came to shove, literally, I think they would have just came and ripped it from his grasp. But thankfully, he was amenable to giving it back. Um, I should remind everyone, we have a ton of American football goodness coming your way this week with the return of OTB Club Gridiron. It'll have highlights from the snap, reports from games, early bird tickets to events, and lots, lots more. Sign up now at otbsports.com forward slash club gridiron. That's otbsports.com forward slash club gridiron. Time for the pick six. In number one on the pick six this weekend, it's kind of a combination of Tua and his issues and the maybe entwined situation involving Deshaun Watson. So I think, are we at a point where we just have to write off Tua as a prospective NFL starter or are we being a tad harsh in that regard? Tua Tagovailoa is not a very good quarterback as far as I can tell, just based on watching him. And I know it's very easy to sell him as a good quarterback right now because the stats of the last couple of weeks have been pretty good. He threw four touchdowns against the Falcons, but he didn't play well in that game overall. The argument is, oh, he threw 40 passes and 36 of them hit the hands of the receivers or 34 of them hit the hands of the receivers or whatever you want to say. Yes and no. Like Sometimes the ball hitting the hands of the receivers doesn't mean it was a good throw. And secondly, he's spending most of the game just checking the ball down. Like He will attempt two or three difficult throws in a full game, whereas if you bring in a normal average starting quarterback, they're going to make riskier throws and they're going to make uh, have more incompletions and probably have more mistakes. But they're going to try and win the game and do more to win the game, whereas Tua doesn't really do that. He's too willing to take the safe play. And then he makes mental errors that lead to crazy interceptions, like the two interceptions he had. I, there's, there's some debate about, oh, he, the first one wasn't his fault. The tight end should have flattened his route. But even if the tight end flattens his route, the ball is still going to be broken up at best. He's not going to catch that ball. It shouldn't have been thrown there at that point. And the second one... It's just insanity because you've got a receiver wide open in the flat and he just doesn't never looks towards him because he doesn't know how to read the defense properly and runs into the middle of the field and throws the ball up for grabs. So it, it's very, very difficult to sell to. He's a weak-armed quarterback. He has very limited uh, upside in terms of athleticism. And the other aspect of this, which is just an absolutely insane story, is his father forced him to play left-handed from when he was younger, even though he's right-handed. Like, I, I don't know about you, but I have a bunch of uncles who say to me, oh, I'm left-handed, and when I was in school, they forced me to write with my right hand. And that's just a thing that, that happens here years and years ago. I've never heard of it happening with a football player, and that football player then getting to the NFL, being the starting quarterback for Alabama. It's an incredible achievement, yeah. but it's also seen, you can see that he do, he struggles to throw the ball with his left hand because he's right-handed. So I don't understand it. It's crazy, and it's going to limit their upside. I know in boxing, to put that cap on for a moment, uh, the, the cube in boxing style coaches everybody to be southpaw, which means you're... Basically, your dominant hand, you, the, the hand you, show, you throw power shots with is, is your left, regardless of whether you're right-handed or left-handed. So I think that's probably slightly different where you can get both hands into play. In NFL, if you funnel yourself down, basically throwing left-handed when you're right-handed, it's kind of putting yourself in a needlessly tricky position. But as you said, like to actually 
scale the heights he's done with that uh, hindrance is, is really quite impressive. I did touch on the Sean Watson there, Keen, and the, the trade deadline by next time we're on will have passed. I think it's November 2nd, so it's kind of now or never in terms of whether he's going to get out of Houston. Seems that the Carolina Panthers are no longer in those sweepstakes. And given the controversy which is swirling around Watson and what we've covered in depth since in this season of the snap, the Dolphins actually do look quite likely. There were reports last night, Irish time anyway, that they were quite close to a deal. Like If we're just looking at it from a football perspective, he will improve them immensely. But do you think it's a, a risk worth taking given the capital they'll have to give up and the background to the Watson situation? It's about desperation for Brian, Brian Flores and the GM there because they are on track to lose their jobs. And if they're going to lose their jobs, they don't care what they're going to give up in draft capital and stuff like that. So you can see them overpaying and you can see them doing what they did with Josh Rosen where they're competing with themselves. As far as we can tell, the only team looking at Watson right now is the Dolphins. Like, There's other teams that are mentioned, but they're flimsily mentioned. And most of the reports about a deal being close or a deal being done are coming from Texans writers and Texans sources. So it's the Texans trying to push this through more than anyone as far as I can tell. At the end of the day, like winning football games is one thing. Who you're supporting and what you're supporting and what you're bringing in as the identity of who you are is another thing. And right now with Deshaun Watson... There's big question marks about who he is and what he's done. And it, it, if you want a comparable to Irish sport, it's it would be Paddy Jackson, I guess. You'd have to look into and what you'd feel like bringing him into an Irish team. And that's what it'd be like for the Dolphins now, come bring uh, Watson into replace too. So it's it's a difficult one in terms of accepting it if you're a fan. But in terms of football sense, yeah, he's 10 times the quarterback that Tua is and he would make them a much better football team. And given that the tour project isn't looking overly prosperous at the moment, we should go to his draft class cohort, and that is, of course, Joe Burrow in number two in the pick six, which is Tiger King. And Keane, somewhat under the radar, the Bengals have become the top seed in the AFC, given that the Ravens actually look like the best team in the AFC, no longer the best team in the AFC North, if you look at the current standings. But it was quite a, a beatdown they gave the Ravens in Baltimore last weekend. But in just if we take the whole season in microcosm at the moment, have you been impressed with the Bengals? Is this are they here to stay in terms of a force for this campaign? Oh yeah, you want to talk about the whole season though. You don't want to talk about last weekend's game. I wonder well, why. Well, well, well. I'll let you I'll let you decide. But I think they the story of the Bengals is probably more than that that almost was the the moment where everybody cottoned on to how good they were, but they've been quietly impressive all season. Like the Packers game, they probably should have won that. And they've been basically impressive in all their games. And Chase, who we spoke about, I think, in somewhat comical terms, that he was discussing how uh, he couldn't catch the ball, the balls were too slippery in the NFL, now looks like a runaway, literally and figuratively, uh, rookie of the year. Yeah, it might be the best rookie wide receiver you've seen since Randy Moss. That's saying something, because Calvin Johnson exists in the middle of that. Um, yeah, the Bengals, offensively, they've kind of been as expected. The only real question about them offensively was Burrow and how healthy he was going to be. And he's been fully healthy. The defensively, that's been kind of impressive because they'd have what you'd call a no-name defense where they don't have anyone you really point to as, that's a really good player, that's a star player. Like, it used to be Geno Atkins. It used to be, um, like, you had Leon Hall, you had Jonathan Joseph. You had all these guys back in the day, Raymond Luga, and they stood out as names. And now you've got guys who were signed to low-level free agent contracts, guys who have been picked up mid-rounds of the draft, and they're just coming together and playing very well, and they've been coached quite well. Last weekend's game, to be fair, it, it was a bit misleading, I think. The fact that the Ravens uh, were down two starting offensive linemen from the previous week with 
um, uh, Ronnie Stanley going out for the season at left tackle and Patrick McCarry leaving the game during the middle of it at right tackle. Like that really impl- affects how they're going to run their offense and how they're going to play. The Ravens are just taking too many injuries. The Bengals look like they could take that division if they continue to play well, but I think both the Ravens and the Bengals will push uh, throughout the rest of the year. And ultimately, just because Lamar Jackson is that little bit of a level higher and he has that little bit more experience, I would probably expect the Ravens to pip them. That's it. Like, if we, if we do want to speak on the Ravens just for a moment, it's funny how reactionary talk radio is, and I, I get it because you have to talk about the headlines as they happen, and especially in the American football sphere when the, the season moves so quickly. Like, the Ravens got in a bit of a run. Some of the wins were a little bit misleading, like they had to come from behind to beat the Colts. The, the Chiefs fumbled, basically gave Ravens the win there, and Justin Tucker kicked a, a record field goal to beat the downtrodden Lions so the record could look quite different at the moment and as you said like nobody has more players on injured reserve than the Ravens so I actually think it'd be quite an impressive achievement to get to the postseason and make some noise like I know they'll probably get a few of those back but you mentioned Stanley there he's gone Marcus Peters who was becoming the leader at the back end of that offense he's also gone and they seem they never seem to have a fully healthy wide receiving core so Bateman came in, but Watkins was out. So I think the Ravens, unless the luck can maybe shine on them in the next few weeks, they might struggle, as you said, to, to close out this division. Maybe they can go and get Brandon Cooks, because he seems to be unhappy. That's one of the ones I thought was surprising. I thought Mark Ingram would go back to the Ravens. He's gone to the Saints now. And it would have made sense. It would have given them a little bit more uh, kind of identity on the offense, uh, or at least alleviate some of the pressure on Lamar, because... We're just continuing to see with those wide receivers, it's not consistent. With Mark Andrews, it's not consistent. And if you get that running game a little bit better than what it is, like Devonta Freeman is fine, Le'Veon Bell is fine, Latavius Murray is fine, but even a guy like Mark Ingram would be a little bit better than that. So they need to make some moves, I think. Hopefully they do, and then if they do, you'll get a real race between them and the Bengals. Now, we can kind of touch it quickly, but I think the Steelers have kind of shown themselves up as just not being up to it this year. They're not that talented. They're not good enough in Roethlisberger isn't anywhere close. And the Browns just look like they're going to continue to beat themselves every other week, which is a Baker Mayfield thing, really. Yeah, the Browns, maybe in future week we can speak on Odell Beckham Jr. and where he actually, where his career's pegged for, because I think at one point we looked at him in the kind of top pantheon or he had that kind of potential, but it hasn't really panned out like that. So it could be one worth keeping an eye on. For this week, we're going to stick with the monarchical theme. So number two was Tiger King. Number three is King Henry. And Derek Henry threw a touchdown pass actually last weekend, but it wasn't quite the entire story of the game where they put a whooping on the Kansas City Chiefs. And this was the game that me and Mike Carson picked as our game of the week. And the, the Chiefs were getting points. The Chiefs were favoured by, I think, six points going into Tennessee. And it looked a bit of a, a strange one and proven to be true because the Chiefs have flattered to deceive and, and Tennessee have been very impressive are they the best team in the AFC? They're right there with the Bills, with the well, the Chargers. Which like there's a bunch of teams in the AFC, I think, and they're all gonna. It's it's one of those things where they can all play each other, and some of them will beat one one team, and they lose to another team. So it's all intertwined. So it's just about the matchups and who shows up on the day. The uh, Chiefs, like you said, there was six and a half points. I picked the Titans, and I felt comfortable doing that, which is an insane thing to say because. You're taking a Titans secondary against Patrick Mahomes, but that's how far the Chiefs have fallen. They're just not a good team at all right now at any facet of what they're doing. Mahomes doesn't deserve all the blame, but he's definitely not being able to elevate guys the way he has in the past. The Titans, Derrick Henry always gets the focus, and Derrick Henry was a focus for them. 
But it was really about Ryan Tannehill, his ability to make a bunch of throws that you don't, that not many quarterbacks can make, his ability to uh, make plays with his feet as well. He ran for a touchdown, he ran for an important first down. He played really well, and that's the, the hidden dynamism of that team. Like, when you've got Ryan Tannehill there and all the focus is on Henry, you can't just focus on Henry because of the plays he'll make. A.J. Brown is phenomenal. Julio Jones has been pitching in here and there. He still doesn't look like the guy you expect him to be. He should have had a touchdown last week and on the left sideline where he just couldn't make the play because he couldn't reach the ball in uh, getting off press coverage in a way you expect him to normally. The Titans have questions, but they're well-rounded enough and they pose so many problems that I think they can actually make, go on a run. But they're, they're the kind of team where if they were going to win the Super Bowl or reach the Super Bowl, they'd have to get hot at the right time, I think. They'd be similar to like Eli Manning's Giants who were being talked about this week because Eli was on with Tom Brady and Peyton. But it would be similar to that. So they're not necessarily stacked and they're not necessarily the most talented team, but they have enough talent where you could just feel like you'd fear them on the day. And we know, and it's well established by now, that Derrick Henry is a bit of an anomaly, but it felt a little bit unnecessary the amount of carries they were giving him in a game that was effectively wrapped up by just over halfway. Like maybe, as you said, save him for later in the season when those runs are going to be more important. But I know you're a big fan of Ryan Tannehill and you mentioned AJ Brown there, who I think is probably one of the most underrated players in the entire league. But to what extent are their maybe credentials boosted by the presence of Henry in that basically that's the primary focus of every defensive coordinator to maybe neutralise him? And does that open up the passing offence or am I being am I giving too much credit to Henry there? Yeah, it's not necessarily that it opens it up. It's just it's the way that it's built. Like, you can't really name off the top of your head the third, fourth, and fifth wide receivers for the Titans, whereas you could do that for other teams. And that's not necessarily because those receivers aren't good. It's guys like Westbrook Hines and uh, Josh Reynolds who's there. Like It's guys who can actually play a little bit, but they don't really get uh, opportunities because the way the offense is built, you're going to have really two receivers, you're going to have one tight end. Right now it's Pruitt before, it, and, and you have um, Anthony Furster there as well who will come in as a receiving option. So what happens is... The identity of the offense becomes about tight ends, fullbacks, and running backs. So it changes the offense, which means Tannehill has to make tougher throws, but it also means the big play options can be there more easily than, than other offenses because the defense can be pulled forward and pulled out of position by Henry's presence. So there are positives and negatives, but one of the aspects of it that doesn't get talked about at all is Henry gets to play with an athletic quarterback. Like That's always a major plus for a running back because they have to account for him keeping the ball in the back end. They have to account for him being uh, uh, effective on bootleg plays. So there's, there's a, a combination here where they complement each other. It's not just Henry carrying the offense and Henry setting the tone and everything working off of Henry. It's the two working, working off of each other. And then A.J. Brown's ability to get up and deep and get downfield quickly, it's, it's all about pulling the defense in different directions. If Henry's pulling you to the line of scrimmage, he's pushing you deep, so he's going further down. And Tannehill's deep ball is simply phenomenal. So that, it's all kind of perfectly working in balance together. With that said... If they do fall behind in games, I'm not sure they're really built to spread spread the field, go three wide receivers, four wide receivers every play, and move the ball on the field. That puts a lot of pressure on Tannehill because they don't have the high quality, or they, they don't have the high quality receivers, but they also don't have receivers who are playing a lot of snaps. So if you could play 14 games in a year and only play 10 snaps every game, and then suddenly the offense is down by three touchdowns, so you've got to play 50 snaps in a game, it's a completely different thing. You're not ready for that. You haven't prepared for that. So. There are question marks about it, but it's 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 an interesting offense in a sense, and they've changed offensive coordinator as well, but everything seems to be uh, smoothly transitioning there. 
Yeah, and just to briefly stay in the running back domain and more specifically in this division, the AFC South. So you look at it, Titans are 5-2, and two, looking quite comfortable there. Another misleading record just from the games I've seen, the Colts are 3-4, and four, but have actually hung in most of the games and Carson Wentz is not the player he was maybe primed to be when he first came into the league. Is is doing an alright job, certainly a big upgrade on Phil Rivers at this moment in time. But we wanted to speak uh, about Jonathan Taylor, Keen, who you were drawing parallels with Adrian Peterson, I believe. Ah, uh, yeah, he's just this incredibly aggressive and violent runner, and it's it's he's powerful, upper body, he's strong, he's fast on a straight line, he's one cut, so he's not going to hang around, he's not going to try and shake side to side, he's going to pick a direction and go, and it's a brilliant way to be as a running back. But it's one of the things you notice when you watch a guy's knees: the higher his knees come up, the more aggressive he's running into contact. That's what Adrian Peterson was. Like that's why he was so difficult to tackle. It wasn't that Adrian Peterson was just bigger and stronger than everyone else. He was violent, and that's what Taylor reminds me of every week. And he's carrying that offense to a degree, and he's played really, really well so far. That's it. And move on to number four in the pick six. And I did allude to it earlier in this conversation, Kane, that you know, talk radio in America, they like to. It seems like a narrative will develop on a Sunday and just basically define that entire week. And the one which has happened the last few days is around Kyle Shanahan. And I'd like to point out that I raised this point maybe for four weeks ago that is he really a genius? Can you be a genius when you have a, a worse record? Let's just take Mike Singletary, for example, is 450. This is career records. Chip Kelly, 444. Kyle Shanahan, 443. So that's kind of that's the kind of rarefied air he's in at the moment. I, I believe you had him in your top five NFL coaches and listen I'm not disputing how good he is or how good he could become but at what point do we have to like actually put him under the microscope and question some of his decisions not least moving up in the draft to take Mac Jones and then taking Trey Lance who's patently not ready to to play at the moment. When Andy Reid was in Philadelphia there was a big knock on the way he ran the team because he had all that power and all that control. Since he's gone to Kansas City it They've gotten better at evaluating. They've gotten better at uh, picking players. It helps that they also don't actually care about character, so they can take people like Tyree Kill at great yeah. value in the mid-rounds. They can take people like Kareem Hunt. Um, but it, it's, it's, it's a parallel there for me because I think Kyle Shanahan is a great, great coach, but I also think he shouldn't have a huge amount of input on personnel decisions because of the players. I was his track record of the guys he's wanted. He wanted Kirk Cousins over Robert Griffin. He wanted Brian Hoyer in Cleveland. He wanted Johnny Manziel, as far as we know, as well. So he's want, And he wanted to sign uh, Jimmy Garoppolo and Kirk Cousins for San Francisco. So as a coach, I would absolutely love to have Kyle Shannon as my coach. But I don't want him making personnel decisions. I need a strong GM. And Bill Belichick is essentially the only coach for the last 20 years who has done this and done both jobs and had full control of GM, full control of head coach, and it's worked out perfectly. We saw with Bill O'Brien, he would get mad, angry at someone in, in practice in, in Houston and just trade them away for no value. He got couldn't get along with DeAndre Hopkins, so he traded him away for a second-round pick when other teams would have given you probably multiple firsts for him. So you you see the emotional aspect and the, the idea that the coaches are too close to the players to properly evaluate them. I think that's the big deal in San Francisco right now. And for as much criticism as Shanahan is getting, and he is getting a lot of criticism, John Lynch doesn't seem to get any, and maybe that's because John Lynch came through media, so he's got friends in media, and they're not really wanting to talk about him like that. But he was getting all the credit when the 49ers were pressing for a Super Bowl, and no one seems to be pointing out that, hey, a lot of his picks haven't been that great over recent times. They've made some investments that haven't been good. They haven't built and developed the team the way they should. But I just the, the schematic aspect of it isn't going to change. The coaching individual aspect of it isn't going to change with Shanahan. I would be comfortably keeping him as in San Francisco. I think it's very possible that they don't. I think they've lost enough games now that 
this could be a, a reckoning for them and he could move on. But if he does move on, he'll be in a job instantly. Like, I don't think they'll be waiting around for, like, it won't be like Doug Peterson in Philadelphia, who seems to have disappeared off the face of the earth after losing his job. And what is your read on the uh, the quarterback situation there? You've got the maybe lack of reliability on Jimmy Grappolo as a executor on the field, but also the fact that he misses so many games through injury. And then Trey Lance, in, in developmental terms, is a long way off being a reliable NFL performer. So just in terms of this season specifically, I know they've both had knocks, but should be healthy in the coming weeks. Would you persevere with Grappolo? Yeah, um, <laughs> it's not a great choice. I, to be honest, the Garoppolo's not even a, a part of the equation. The question is, does Trey Lance develop better by playing or by sitting? If you think he's going to be better off for sitting, then you sit him. If you think he's better off by playing, then you play him. Because the season's gone, Garoppolo is not an answer one way or another. So it's just all about Trey Lance. I wouldn't have picked Trey Lance, so I'm not really the best person to come along and say, oh, get him in, let's see him play, because I just don't think he's particularly good. So they have a decision to make. They've got to pick what they value. But this is the dichotomy of the NFL as well, where Shanahan might feel like he's coaching for his job. So he might not be able to think about long term and development and what, what's best for Lance. He might have to just think about how he wins. We can draw the parallel to rugby again. Andy Farrell feels that way sometimes, too. And that's why he keeps picking Johnny Sexton. So all these things happen over sports and all these the, where business and sports intertwine, the decisions are made. And that's what's uh, going to happen and determine the future in San Francisco. Yeah, you mentioned like their season nominally being over and we talked about this division potentially producing three or four playoff teams, but the Cardinals obviously runaway leaders at the moment. The Rams, to be fair, only one game behind at 6-1. and one. Then the 49ers 2-4, and four. Seahawks 2-5. and five. And we talked about them as perennial playoff contenders, but like they have been blighted by injury and poor makeup of the roster, as we've touched on previously, that you know, the defence, which was once lauded, is now leaving a lot to be desired and like their season is, is over as well by the looks of it yeah and that's the one where we're kind of giving Pete Carroll a pass but they've done a very poor job over the last few years as well like outside of DK Metcalf who has come in there and made a really positive impact I can't think of anyone at this stage yeah and like they they're on course for a high draft pick but they've obviously given their draft picks to the Jets for a safety which is just like Whatever about giving away a first round pick. Bad safety too. That's it. Like he's not even a safety. He's um he's a bit like a honey badger in that he has no real position. He likes to affect the play and it's all well and good, but it's a bit boom or bust and to be basically deciding the next few years of your franchise's future on the basis of that, I think, is a bit of a whim. We should move on to number five in the pick six, that's Pitts Creek and Kyle Pitts who First few weeks, I think fantasy owners were probably looking at him and thinking, geez, I thought this guy was supposed to be transcendent, transformative, generational. He wasn't putting up a great stat line, but he's, he's fairly gotten into the task now, Keen. He looks really impressive. And while the Falcons, there are, there are problems to contend with there, he's looking very impressive. If you were to explain football to someone who didn't know what football was, how would you tell them what a tight end is? It's difficult because on paper, and I think we actually mentioned this a few weeks ago, that their central focus within the offense has certainly developed since the Grand Hernandez days where Bill Belichick made him the focal point of his approach. And now, laterally, like the likes of Mark Andrews and these kinds of guys have become, again, chief targets for quarterbacks. But like I think on paper, they're actually more in terms of, they're like the oil that gets the offense moving in terms of blocking and that kind of thing. But I would just call them maybe bumper wide receivers. Bumper, like bumper cars. Kind of, yeah. <laughs> um, so I was watching that game against the Dolphins and 
Pitts made two plays, one down the left sideline where he's got a defender on his back and he pulls the ball in with one hand. And then another where he just shows his, his speed to get downfield and catch another deep ball downfield. And you watch it and you hear, oh, great play by Kyle Pitts, the rookie tight end. And I'm like, no tight end in history has ever made that play. Mm. That's not a tight end play. Like, So we can talk about the evolution of the position, and we have done. It went from being only blocking to the Jason Witten types, guys who do a lot of blocking, who can catch a few passes on the side, Heat Millers, Kyle Rudolphs, guys like that. And you had Gronk, who's an incredible receiver. And then you had Antonio Gates, who's an incredible receiver as well. Tony Gonzalez did a lot as well. But you never had guys who were like long, spindly athletes who could outrun cornerbacks and then make ridiculous catches. Like Gronk has made ridiculous catches, but they're generally within the frame of his body. He's not making these extended one-handed catches away from his body. Pitts is a wide receiver. We need to stop calling him a tight end because he's not built to block at all, even though he, he can be effective doing it. But even then, he's not like Travis Kelsey, who is a wide receiver in a tight end's body. Pitts is a wide receiver who is a deep threat. Who in, in the, We've had them at tight end. We've had a few of them at tight end, but we've never had one like this where it looks so natural and so comfortable to him. So there's endless possibilities in terms of moving him around the field and getting the most out of him. The problem is the Falcons, as an offensive whole... They're not really stable. Everything's kind of under pressure. Everything's about getting uh, opportunities where you can get them rather than like dictating to the defense and setting up shot plays. And once they can start doing that, they'll be a really good team and he should continue to put up big numbers. So I know there was some level of skepticism around the decision to draft. Like, I don't want to call him a, a marquee player or, I don't know, like... Generally, when a team is rebuilding like the Falcons, you, you kind of build from the front and work backwards, whereas they kind of took this this shiny piece, uh, I think, number four in the draft. It's safe to say that was the right decision at this point? Well, you have to look at They had Caleb McGarry and Chris Lindstrom as first-round picks in recent years. The, the question mark was really, do you move on from Matt Ryan or not? I think the answer was they should have moved on from Matt Ryan, but it's always difficult to move on from your older franchise quarterback. The team as a whole is not good, and it's, we've seen that over and over and over again. The question is, is Pitts going to be there long-term? Probably, so you can justify it that way. But me, personally, I would have tried to hit the reset button. I don't like these soft resets in the NFL. If you're going to rebuild, go all out. Get rid of your stars. Get the draft capital and bring in the young guys, the foundations to build on. It might not work, but you have a better chance than just going to cling along and re- re- uh, rebirth the late career of a, an older quarterback. Would have been interesting to have prime Pitts prime Julio Jones, prime Matt Ryan in sequence at one point, but alas... You, you basically did. They had Roddy White, they had Julio Jones, they had Tony Gonzalez together. That was Matt Ryan's prime. No, that's fair enough. I, I always quite like Matt Ryan, but he... Like, it's hard to ever forget what happened in that Super Bowl. Kyle Shannon, once again, came maybe, you know, crumbled under the pressure. Devonta Freeman missed the block. Devonta Freeman missed the block, and that's what caused the fumble. What about the other 40 points they conceded, or whatever it was? Ah, uh, don't mention them. A bit of a mad one. We'll move on to number six, the last in the pick six, and more, a tangential point, general point, Keane, I found it quite interesting. Mike Tomlin came out all guns firing. I don't know if you saw that clip of, he's been linked with a couple of college positions. I think Carson Palmer had been basically touting him, saying that he was under consideration, and someone put that to him in his media conference, and he basically said, no chance, never say never, but I'm saying never. And are you asking Sean Payton this question? Are you asking Andy Reid this question? The implication being that he's at the Pittsburgh Steelers, one of the most storied franchises in all of American sports. Why would he want to leave to go to college? And it is an interesting one because some have taken that route. Like um, you look at Jim Harbaugh at Michigan and it probably hasn't gone as well as people anticipated when he moved, made the move to college. But this lad was 
in, very much in Super Bowl contention, had been to championship games plenty with San Francisco. There was a sense maybe that he'd run out of time and or like the, the personnel in the squad had basically run out of patience with his approach. But you take him as an example, he was actually amenable to going to college, whereas Tomlin dismissed it straight out. Just in broadly, in broad terms, I should say, the difference between college coaching and professional coaching, I suppose, and why maybe some people don't take to it as easily as others. Well, first off, from Tomlin's point of view, the reason that bothers him so much is he's obviously won Super Bowl. And if you've won a Super Bowl and you're in a league where black coaches don't become head coaches and people start talking about you going to college, you're going to be like, what? Why would I go down to college? I'm proven in this professional level. This is what I do. But in terms of the differences between coaching college and coaching uh, at the NFL, there are a lot of differences in terms of like the actual specifics of how you coach football, but that's not really the interesting angle of it. The interesting angle is the control that you have. So when you're a college coach, you have 120 people on your roster. They're, most of them are scholarship controlled, which means you have full power over them. If you tell them to do something and they don't do it, you'll just go, all right, I'm going to pull your scholarship and you're no longer going to be on this team. Whereas in the NFL, you can't just get rid of anyone you don't want as easily because there's salary cap ramifications because you can't just go out and recruit 10 other guys to replace them. And then it's uh, an aspect of the practice in the offseason, uh, how much control you have of that, how much influence you have over them in uh, in season on what they're doing, what they're focusing on. There's just a level of control. and But then surpass that, and this is something we've seen with Chip Kelly that's been mentioned before and with other coaches. NFL players are adults. They expect to be treated like adults and they expect to be not the rah-rah shout at you, getting your ear nonsense on your, in, your, in your head all game and just giving, doing whatever they want to you in practice. In college, these are kids. These are 17, 18, 19 years of age and they don't know any better and they don't have any power. So they have to do what they're told, which gives the coach more autonomy and it gives someone like Urban Meyer the ability to get away with whatever he wants to get away with. And then you get to the fanatical nature of college football where these head coaches are not just coaches. They are like, like we've seen, is it Tommy Tuberville, who's a, a politician now, an elected official in Alabama, and they just they become these iconic figures. Whereas that doesn't really, that cult following doesn't really exist in the NFL. If you're a great NFL coach, you are beloved, but you don't really run the town the way college football coaches can run the town. Like Nick Saban is the most important person in Alabama, and I'm not saying that in a sport context or a football context. <laughs> He's the most important person in Alabama, and that it, it's it's mental to comprehend over here. Maybe we maybe we're kind of lucky, or or we're just in that specific bracket of we have the GAA, so we understand what the fanatical nature and, and local pride is, and how it can warp some people, and how it can encourage some people, how it can get the best out of some people and get the worst out of others. But most people can't really understand or don't have a comparable to college football. Unfortunately, we do. So I, I, I can understand why you'd want to be an NFL coach because it's probably actually a lot less pressure on you. It's probably a lot easier. Uh, but then again, the other side of that is college coaches often get paid more. They get Some of them get paid insane amounts of money. Yeah, that's it. That was certainly a, a prime issue with the Jim Harbaugh thing when that was initially being floated and I was dismissing it out of hand. But once you saw the figures being bandied around, you could kind of justify it. It's an interesting point about the rah-rah element of it. And you can probably level that at a good few coaches, but you see probably the, the thinkers who have succeeded in the NFL and then you move to Saban is particularly interesting given his illustrious career as a college coach just did not click for him in the NFL with Miami and to your point on maybe the control element you have at college level also the talent level like at every position especially at those top colleges you have 
the best of America. You, it's so you have so many deep options. Whereas you take Urban Meyer for example, he's going to Jacksonville and he's got maybe the quarterback of his generation there. But short of that, he's probably looking around and it's a little bit threadbare. So I can understand why some have found it difficult. Pete Carroll probably is an interesting one where he, he succeeded at both levels and you know managed to transplant those rah-rah elements that he's famous for into that professional environment. So yeah, it's one to keep an eye on. I know there probably isn't as much movement between the two codes as there used to be, but you know I've always find it an interesting dynamic. Before we go, we should get to our competition few contenders for Game of the Week, Keen, but I've gone for Cowboys at Vikings, just judging by the line as well. Cowboys favoured by only 1.5 points. I say only, but do you think that's a fair line and who would you be leaning towards? Who hell, who, who set this line? Who's been watching the Vikings this year? I, I mean, the Vikings have I should, had good games against... I should, the- I should point out at this point, is Dak Prescott's participation nailed on. I know there was some doubt that maybe he might miss this week. He'd been injured during the bye week. So maybe that plays into it slightly. Maybe, but like normally if if the quarterback is really in trouble of missing the game, there wouldn't be a line. So I would assume he's going to play. Maybe he's going to be playing hurt and maybe that's the great offsetter. But like unless you're betting on the Vikings having those running performances that they've had against the Cowboys in the past, which I don't think they will, because I think this, the Cowboys' defense has changed, especially now that they recognize how bad Jalen Smith is and got rid of him. But because you have that quality of defense, the only real way I can see them uh, keeping pace with the Cowboys is if Dalvin Cook has a huge game. And I just can't see it happening. I can see uh, uh, Diggs, Trayvon Diggs continuing his interception streak because Cousins tends to give opportunities even if they're not always taking advantage of. So I'm going with the Cowboys, and you could add five or six more points to that. I think they'll win by a touchdown or more. That was my sense of it as well, and yet Kirk Cousins does sporadically pull out these ridiculous performances. I know the knock on him was maybe he doesn't do well on prime time, but you're, you're not going to get many more games with more of a media mic- microscope than when you're playing against Dallas, so it'll be interesting to see how he performs. But it is an interesting line. I agree with you. I think the, the Cowboys will win. If you agree with myself and Keen, just get on to us on Twitter or wherever you're watching this stream. Use the hashtag OTBSnap and who you, th- who you think's going to win. So again, the Cowboys are favoured by 1.5 points heading in to Minnesota. For now though, that's all from us. Cheers Keen, and thanks to Ken and Andy for helping putting the show together, and to all of you for tuning in. We'll be back next week.